Hello and welcome to The Solution, a wellness manifesto. I'm your host, Dr. Nate Lowenstein, and this is episode number five, Do You Believe Me? All right, let's get into it. Today we're going to shift course a little bit away from nutrition to talk about one of the other pillars of wellness. We're going to start talking about what's going on between our ears. In previous episodes, we've discussed alarming statistics regarding chronic illness like high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and cancer, and how all of those things are on the rise. There are similar alarming trends with regard to mental illness as well. One in four adults in America experience a mental illness within a given year. One in 17 experience severe mental illness, and severe mental illness includes schizophrenia, major depression, and bipolar disorders. One-fifth of teens experience severe mental illness each year, so again, going back to those things like schizophrenia and major depression. In the age range between 8 and 15, it's 13%. 13% of 8-year-olds are experiencing severe mental illness every year. That's insane. Almost 20% of Americans live with an anxiety disorder such as OCD, PTSD, panic disorder, or generalized anxiety. Half of all chronic mental illness begins by age 14. Mood disorders are the third most common cause of hospitalization in America, and suicide is now our 10th leading cause of death. So why are those numbers and statistics relevant to a podcast with a focus on chronic illness, and what would nutrition and exercise have to do with mental health? Well, that's an excellent question, imaginary person who asks me questions. First of all, we often make the assumption that our mental well-being and our physical well-being are somehow separate from each other. Obviously, nothing can be further from the truth. The whole premise behind holism is based on the principle that all of our parts are intimately connected and cannot function independently. In addition, it's well documented that individuals with serious mental illness face an increased risk of having a chronic medical condition, things like obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and cancer. In fact, adults living with serious mental illness die on average 25 years earlier than other Americans. I always try to put those numbers into a more realistic perspective, and I know that that becomes redundant, but I think there's value in trying to make it more personal because it's very easy to hear alarming statistics and think, well, that is awful and terrible, but you know what can be done? So we just need to move on, all the while making this assumption that those numbers somehow don't apply to you or to the people that you care about. The bottom line is that nearly one-fifth of the people you know right now have a severe mental disorder. Some of them are eight years old. That those people, your friends, your family, possibly even yourself, are at risk for chronic illnesses, the illnesses we've been discussing, and that their lives will be cut short by 25 years, which on average represents about a third of their life. If you can identify with information we've been discussing in these episodes, What I mean is, if you know that you eat the standard American diet, and you know that you live a mostly sedentary lifestyle, and if you start to identify negative self-talk or a pessimistic outlook, I'm talking to you. The purpose of today's episode will be to improve our understanding of the mind-body connection and just begin a discussion on how our self-talk can play a role in susceptibility to these illnesses. Our perception of our environment and our belief about ourselves in that environment can shape an awful lot about our behavior and physiology. 
For example, a lot of the statistics I've given you up to this point in the show, if I ask you to put those in a box and label that box as good or bad, my guess is that a lot of you would say, yeah, those statistics are bad. But here's the thing. Those numbers aren't anything other than facts. They only belong in a box labeled true. If the meaning behind the numbers leads to a bad outcome for you, that means it's time to take some action. My purpose in sitting at this desk and talking to this microphone is to help you understand that if I'm talking about you, you have a choice. You are not destined to be ill. You can make subtle changes in your lifestyle that will improve your health, but there are some prerequisites that might make the think well portion of our work here more important than some of the others. One, you have to have a desire to improve your health. You're listening to the show, so I'm going to assume that that desire exists to some extent for you. Two, you have to believe that you're capable of being healthy and happy, and that starts with the belief that you deserve to be healthy and happy, because you do. And your belief about these things is far more important than you know. A minute ago, I mentioned the importance of perception. I'm going to pull a quote from a study, and we're going to kind of unpack it a little bit because I think it's absolutely mind-blowing. In this study, they sent soldiers on a march. They did not tell them how far they were going to go. And after the march was over, they asked these soldiers to estimate how far they had marched. Here's the crazy thing. What mattered was how closely the anticipated challenge matched their perception of their capabilities. When asked to estimate the length of the march, the levels of stress hormone in their blood corresponded to the length they thought it was, not the length it actually was. If you remember from episode two, we talked about stress hormones and how they affect our physiology. What's important to understand from this research is that our stress response often will correspond to our perception of a stressor, our belief about how difficult or easy any given situation might be. Your mind is incredibly powerful in determining some of your physiology and health. Now, let's make this a little more relevant to something that we call self-talk. What is self-talk? Self-talk is your inner dialogue. It is how you address yourself and then how you relate your mind to your environment. What this study teaches us is that how we perceive our environment and how we respond to it through our inner dialogue can actually affect our health. Because if we perceive something as being overly stressful, that belief is going to create a fight or flight response to a higher degree. You should remember from the episode on stress that when we stay in fight or flight for extended periods of time, we are setting ourselves up for chronic illness. It's a recipe for disaster. So hopefully you're starting to see and understand exactly how important your mindset and what you believe about yourself and your life and your experience, how important that stuff is to your health. What we believe about ourselves and our environment can also become anchored and cause automatic subconscious reactions. If you don't know what I mean by that, when I say anchored, the most classic example of this phenomenon that I know of is the Pavlov's dogs. To recap, for those of you who don't know what that is, they rang a bell every time they fed the dogs. And so initially, they'd show them food, the dogs would salivate, they'd ring a bell, nothing happens. Then they would ring a bell every time they fed them, and eventually, they would just ring the bell and the dogs would begin to salivate. So their nervous system identified the stimulus in the environment, the ringing bell, and anchored it to initiating digestion because they were expecting food. The sound of the bell was able to initiate or change the function of their body. 
So here's another study that in my view shows just how important these anchors can be and how, how profound of an effect they might have. Rats that were given saccharin, a sweetener, along with a drug that caused nausea. The rats eventually associated the taste of the sweet saccharin with the nausea, even when they weren't given the drug. The rats with the highest doses of saccharin began to die of infectious illness, so they had to look into that, and it turned out that the drug used to induce the nausea was also an immune suppressant. So these rats had not only anchored the sweet taste to feeling nauseous and kept feeling nauseous after the drug was removed, their nervous system had also associated that taste with a downregulation of the immune system, and that downregulation perpetuated after they stopped taking the drug, making these rats more susceptible to infections and killing them. Their nervous system had detected a stimulus, and they had a conscious and subconscious association that affected their physiology. That's how powerful your brain is on how it's controlling your body. And what we believe about ourselves is far more powerful than we often will realize. In medicine and medical research, there's something called a placebo effect. I'm sure that most of you are aware of what that is by now. Essentially, usually in the course of research, participants are given an inert substance like a sugar pill, and they will experience a therapeutic effect. An easy example to consider this would be if I were going to study headaches and I gave one group Tylenol, something a lot of people will take for headaches, and another group a sugar capsule, members of the sugar capsule group would experience some relief from their headaches. Well, why would this happen? Again, with the on-time question from my imaginary guest, well done. The placebo group will have an effect because the participants believe that they're receiving an effective therapy, and that belief caused it to be effective. So once again, our belief is huge. It has been widely assumed over time that there is no such thing as a placebo effect in surgery, particularly when it comes to an orthopedic surgery, because you'll use evidence, um, orthopedic tests and diagnostic imaging to prove that there is some sort of tissue compromise that requires a surgical intervention. They need to go in and fix whatever is broken. But everything is worth testing, so some researchers from Baylor University set out to prove this back in 2002, and the results are pretty remarkable. Everyone selected for the study had severe debilitating knee pain. That was the inclusion criteria. The original article actually says, quote, all good surgeons know there's no placebo effect in surgery. So they proceed with the study. Some participants get a surgery and others get a sham. The people that got the sham surgery did receive anesthesia. The surgeons performed the same incisions as if they were performing the actual surgery. And then they went through the process and talked and acted as if they were performing a surgery, all while doing nothing. And what was the outcome? Here's my imaginary friend with a good question again. The outcome was that the placebo group improved as much as the intervention group. One member was not told until years later that he had received an actual surgery, and he didn't believe it. He thought that they had made a mistake in, in terms of what group he was in. When he went into the program, he was unable to walk without assistance of a walker or a cane. After he came out of the program, having had the sham surgery, he was playing basketball with his grandkids. So that's a pretty remarkable outcome and proving that, in fact, the placebo effect was effective in surgery. So if you're not picking up on it yet, what you believe about yourself, about what you're capable of, about what you can or can't do is extremely powerful. According to Bruce Lipton's book, The Biology of Belief, the data shows that in more than half of the clinical trials for the six leading antidepressant drugs on the market, and by the way, antidepressants are the number one category of prescribed drugs in the United States. 
So in more than half of their clinical trials, the drugs actually did not outperform the placebo. People did get better, but not necessarily due to the medical intervention. They got better because they believed that that intervention was helping them. How is this beneficial to us? Well, it's beneficial for a lot of reasons, but let's start with what hopefully is the most obvious one. So far up to this point, I've spent hours talking into this microphone to help convince you that by taking responsibility and taking control of and for your health, you can reduce your risk of chronic mental and physical illness and live a happier, healthier, longer, more fulfilling life. But the big question for you is, do you believe that's true? You have to start there. Do you believe that you have a say in whether or not you're healthy or sick, or do you believe it's a predetermined outcome? Probably one of the most important things to understand with regard to the concept of belief, and yes, I'm aware that at this point, this episode could be turned into a drinking game, probably using the word belief. But anyway, if we're willing to accept and understand that a person that we can improve our health and reduce our pain simply by believing that interventions, changes, or decisions that we're making and doing are working, imagine what you can do to your mental or physical health or well-being by believing, by believing the opposite, by believing that you can't get well, that you can't be healthy, and that you don't deserve those things. All too often, that is kind of what we're being told. This is a very dangerous place to let your mind go, but some of the dialogue with, with regard to chronic illness is, Hey, these things are genetic. They run in families. You know, I got cancer. My mom had cancer. I was determined to do it, that there's this genetic determination for illness, disease, arthritis, etc. And if that's our belief system, then we don't feel like we have any control. An important first step to understand where you're at with regard to your self-talk and your current automatic beliefs is to examine them with an exercise. This exercise harkens back to my training with James Chestnut and something he shared in one of his books as well as workshops with him. So this is a belief identification or self-talk identification exercise. What you're going to do is you're going to set a timer at a regular interval, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever is reasonable for you, whatever you can reasonably manage. Just understand that in the beginning, the more frequently you can tap into this, the better and, and more effective information you're going to gather. When the timer goes off, you're just going to pause what you're doing and evaluate your self-talk, if any. Evaluate actions and reactions that you're having to how you're discussing with yourself your place in the world and how it's making you feel in your mind, how it's making you feel emotionally, and maybe even in your body. For example, if you're playing through a stressful situation or anticipating a stressful situation, has your heart rate gone up? Is your breathing gone up? And if you're identifying that happening a lot, if you're seeing that as a pattern of behavior, well, we've already talked about what chronic fight or flight can do. So this is going to be an important thing to identify. You might be thinking it would be helpful for me to give you an example here of what you're looking for, but the simple truth is I don't want to make any assumptions about where you're at with your self-talk or plant any seeds about what you're supposed to see. I just want you to set a timer and evaluate how your mind is interacting with your world. You can also do this without a timer. If you feel yourself pondering something or considering something or playing out a scenario that either has happened or you're anticipating particularly if you start to feel strong emotions about it, pause and try to evaluate that as though you're observing it, as though you're looking at how you want it to go. When you're evaluating your self-talk, be detailed about what you find. 
if, for example, you're focused on an event or an interaction that either has happened or you're anticipating happening, write down your actions, the reactions you're getting, other people's responses, and do this for your, your real genuine interactions with people. If you're imagining interactions with people that haven't happened, start to look at the, the reactions that you're assuming other people will have with regard to your communication and try to identify why it is you think you are getting that response. Then you're going to take this and evaluate your self-talk on a scale of congruency with your values. So that sounds a little complicated, and I'll do what I can to make it simple. You're going to take between 5 and 10 of the most important characteristics that you think make up a good person. You're going to write those down. Then you're going to go back and look at your self-talk, and you're going to say, you're going to ask yourself some really simple questions. With my self-talk, am I being the person I want to be? Is this how I want to behave? Is this the person I'm trying to become? And then you're going to rank yourself on a scale of one to 10, basically, with your self-talk or your interactions that you're considering and how those line up with those values you've listed. So examples for your values list for what it's worth would be, you know, honesty, kindness, trustworthiness, those are things that we can all probably agree make up a a good person. So you're going to take the ones that you consider to be the most important traits, and then you're going to evaluate how am I doing with regard to those things that I consider valuable in a person. When you're evaluating your self-talk, you're going to evaluate those communications and actions and then rank them and see where you land. If you're considering your interactions with other people, that are real, did you elicit a positive or a negative response with your communication and was that consistent with your intent? And were you being kind? Were you being honest? Were you meeting those people where they were? You know, evaluate those things on a scale of one to 10. For the lowest scores that you give yourself, what we're looking at there is some incongruencies with your values that can be stressful to you. So then you're going to kind of replay what happened or what you were thinking about and describe self-talk or actions or interactions that you have in that situation that would represent congruency with your values, that would represent an improvement in that score. You think about how could I replay that scenario or rewrite that self-talk to be more congruent with my values and more in line with the person I want to be. And once we have this, you know, we've done a, a good deal of work to land on this, then we're going to use this as an exercise for mindful meditation. You're going to use your imagination to replay and visualize yourself acting congruently either with your self-talk or if you're considering a scenario you participated in, you're going to play yourself in that scenario behaving the way you wish you had. And you're going to play it over and over again in your mind until it feels real to you. That might take 10 times and it might take 100, but you need to just work through it until you're convinced. This is using mindful meditative practice to anchor what would be a more congruent behavior in our imagined scenario or in our self-talk. Something I always mention when we talk about mindfulness or self-talk evaluation is that if you start to identify a pattern of negativity in your self-talk, either toward yourself or directed out into the world, it's always important to consider where that voice is coming from. Who does it belong to and who's in control of it? We are more often than not our own worst enemy when it comes to mental and emotional well-being. Like anything else in life, this is something that takes practice to improve. 
but practice will improve it. And the science is pretty clear on that. The think well portion of wellness is probably the thing I personally struggle with the most. It is challenging. Our minds are complicated and our reactions are colored by our history, our experience, but you are worth the work. It's worth taking the time to try to do this if it's something you're struggling with. Something I always like to mention when discussing the training toward a healthy mind or mindset is it's never any mystery to anyone what needs to happen if you want to improve your physical strength. If you want to be able to back squat 400 pounds and currently you can back squat 300 pounds, what do you need to do? You need to train those muscles and then help them recover through proper nutrition and rest. The holism model, again, helps us understand that this is also true with our mind. We want good mental health, so we need to train for good mental health and then nourish and recover with our minds the same we do with our back squat muscles. And you can do it. Next week, we're going to expand on some of these topics and some of these ideas a little bit and spend some time overlapping two of our pillars of wellness, the thinking well and the moving well concepts. I really hope you're still enjoying these episodes, and if you consider them valuable to you, please consider sharing them with your friends and family members. Also, if you have any questions or comments, constructive criticism, or suggestions for things you want to hear me talk about, I genuinely welcome your feedback. You can message me through the Facebook page for The Solution to Wellness Manifesto, or you can email me at thesolutionpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for joining me today on The Solution, a Wellness Manifesto. I appreciate you being here. I hope that the information we covered in this week's episode was beneficial to you and that you can apply it into your life to help yourself move away from sickness and towards health. I'd like to thank my sponsor, Functional Performance Chiropractic and Wellness, for their ongoing support. And I'd like to appeal to you. If you know anyone who would benefit from the information we're talking about on this show, and I know you do, please refer them back to episode number one so we can all get started on the same page. I look forward to working with you and them. Until next week, take good care of yourself.